Welcome to The Axe and Politics. I'm Kayla Guillory, here with Lucas Rodriguez and Rory Ariana Kenna. What's up? Hey. Last week, we ended on a somber note about a shooting in Kansas. Shootings happen all too often and go out of the news all too quickly in America. And we've decided, as a matter of principle, that each week this happens, we'd like to put it at the beginning of our podcast to remind us and our listeners that gun violence affects America far too much to be ignored. The devastating consequences of domestic shootings will not soon be forgotten by the loved ones of the victims and should not be forgotten by the American public. We're going to move forward now with the rest of our podcast, but we all hope we never have to make an announcement like this again. Thank you. Okay, yeah, so now transitioning back to our coverage of the 2016 election cycle. Uh, last week, Bernie Sanders won the Michigan Democratic primary, which really shook up the race. You know, Hillary was projected to beat him by like a 20-point margin or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, and it's mm-hmm. crazy, right? Because Bernie got a huge number of votes to turn out. Um, if I remember reading correctly, Michigan precincts actually were running out of ballots, so they had to order extra ones because so many people were coming to the polls. And this is this is huge for Bernie's revolution because, it's that's again, that's what it's based off of, getting the silent majority of Americans to come out to the polls. And this is, this is very different from the last few states where Democratic turnout has been surprisingly low. And I think... Yeah, I Things think... may be starting to turn around for Bernie Sanders. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one interesting thing about that is actually, so Mayor Bloomberg actually just announced that he's not going to run for president. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, people are seeing that the reason is because he would take votes from Hillary, the now projected candidate. And so it sort of connects because Bernie just got this huge upset in Michigan. And even though it still look like looks like Hillary's going to win, um, you know, now we're seeing Bernie is at least, he's still got some momentum in him, you know, so who knows where that's going to take him. Yeah, it's interesting because um, a Bernie-Trump race may actually favor Bloomberg. Yeah, that would have been the best case scenario for Bloomberg, but I think he's just too concerned that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee and whoever the Democratic candidate is, even if it is Bernie Sanders who he would fare better against, I think he's afraid he's going to take votes away from the Democrat and help Donald yeah, Trump win. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which he definitely does not want to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and also, so last week, another big thing that happened was that Ben Carson officially dropped out of the presidential race. Um, and that was So that was last week. So we've officially had two debates without Ben Carson with us anymore. Um, and, you know, then speaking of the debates, so what happened at the Republican debate? Well, uh, last night at the Republican debate, Donald Trump, it was a more civil debate than most, but Donald Trump still made outrageous statements like he doubled down on his Wednesday claim to Anderson Cooper that Islam hates America and Jake Tapper asked him to clarify if he meant like some Muslims like the radical ones like the Republicans love radical Islam exactly yeah like other candidates were but targeting radical Islam but Trump he, he just said no uh, he well he actually said a lot of Muslims really <laughs> do hate America, and he stands completely by, behind his statement. And Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and John Kasich all completely disavowed that. And Marco Rubio, I thought, for a guy who seems like he's on his way out, um, made a very good response to that about how there are Muslims serving in the military for the United States. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, and you know, Rubio had somewhat of a home field advantage in this debate, I'd say, right? It's in, it's in Miami. He grew up in Miami. Um, it's in Miami because the Florida primary is coming up, which is shaping up to be probably the the, the climax of oh, Marco yeah. Rubio's. It's, it it's seems, very important. It seems like it might actually be the resolution of Marco Rubio's campaign. Exactly. Because yeah. he's probably not going to win the way the current polls stand. And like everyone's been describing, it's do or die, and he might die. But, but Kasich, on the other hand, you know, Ohio's the same day as Florida. Both states are winner-take-all. Kasich's pulling very well in Ohio. Um, neck and neck with Trump right now. If he can get that win, his campaign, I don't think he has a shot at the nomination, but it's alive enough for to prevent maybe Trump from getting more delegates. And Ohio and Florida both have a lot of delegates at stake. And, yeah. Sorry. And in case you don't know, I mean, Florida is so important because it's winner take all. And so is Ohio. Exactly. So so these states, if, you know, the front, the the first place is all that matters. Nobody else, second, third, it doesn't matter. So, you know, which is, that's one reason why um, Cruz campaigning so hard in Florida could be such a devastating blow to the Republican Party. And, and that's what a lot of Republican strategists are saying in this anti-Trump camp, or never Trump, I think it's titled. Um, they say that Ted Cruz 
should actively tell his supporters in Florida and Ohio to vote for Rubio and Kasich, respectively. Because if Trump wins both of these winner-take-all states, mm -hmm. then he's already he already seems pretty inevitable. He's virtually unbeatable, yeah. 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 That's so many delegates. But um, we'll switch now to some Stanford news, because there is a lot of it this week. Um, so first of all, we just wanted to let you know that we will keep you updated on Fooling on the Quad. There's still quite a bit of controversy going on with that and whether or not the administration is going to pull all support. Um, but in case you were looking for something else the administration is thinking about pulling a support from or banning, um, the administration has just announced that they are considering an alcohol ban in undergraduate dorms, meaning that there can be no hard alcohol or else undergraduates will be in some sort of trouble or see some sort of backlash from the administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to be clear, this was it was originally rumored to be just a ban on hard alcohol in freshman dorms, but the announcement made by the university yesterday via an email sent out by President Hennessy is saying that it would most likely be a ban on hard alcohol in all undergraduate residences. And most undergraduates, including I think all of us, think that's a horrible idea Terrible. because... One of the things about Stanford's policy, or the policy that it has had, is that it's been intended to keep the students actually safer because they can be more honest and upfront with mm -hmm. their resident assistants and mm -hmm. with the resident fellows about their drinking. They don't have to hide it. They right. don't have to be fearful in case they are in a dangerous or unhealthy situation. They don't have to worry about mm -hmm. the like, yeah, and this is okay. yeah, so that's the original logic of our open alcohol policy, right? Is that um, openness leads to perhaps more safety, and this is the the logic behind this ban is kind of the exact opposite of that logic, I'd say. And I think this is also where we start to see these like these numbers that lie, right? Because um, you know people have said or like there have been broad claims maybe that Stanford has a lot of quote-unquote transports, which is where students get transported to the hospital for alcohol poisoning. But, you know, it's that versus universities where students are afraid to report that, that somebody may or may not have alcohol poisoning and therefore don't go to the hospital, you know, and, and so if they had policies like ours could have numbers that are just the same just because, you know, students here feel so comfortable making sure that everyone in their presence is okay and making sure they themselves are okay because they feel open enough to talk about it knowing they won't get in trouble. And so this policy isn't set in stone yet and all of the resident fellows of the undergraduate residences on campus are holding talks with their residents to talk mm -hmm. about how they feel about the new policy and... Not just how they feel, but also um, asking them to come up with alternatives, right? We, the President Hennessy urged the resident fellows to come up with alternative policies to this outright ban um, because he wants, you know, supposedly wants to hear the student population's opinion. So if we all can collectively come up with a better policy, and I think there is one that exists than yeah. this ban... And we all know that this is not the policy, and it was made very clear in just a few hours. Over 1,700 students signed a petition for our ASSU student government to basically just oppose the alcohol ban. Mm -hmm. And that's about a quarter of the undergraduate community who signed it within a few hours. Yeah, I mean, that's students, that's RAs, that's, that's so many people combined that are saying, no, this is a terrible idea. Uh, moving on, another petition that got a lot of signatures, well, just enough signatures to be more precise, was the Western Civilization petition that we mm -hmm. mentioned, I think, two weeks ago on the podcast. And that petition barely made the cutoff by last night to be on the ballot mm -hmm. for our student government um, voting that happens later this year. And it's still very controversial but it's going to keep the conversation going about what the humanities presence at Stanford is and what it should look like yes. in the future. Yeah, and that's just a follow-up, you know, and, and it just means that the conversation is going to continue on, on what people think and what we should do about this. So we'll also keep you updated on that as um, more developments come in. Um, we'd also like to talk a little bit about another publication here on campus called The Fountain Hopper. And this publication is fairly new. It's only a couple years old. Started I started last year, I believe. Last year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's sort of been, it's sort of been compared to the National Enquirer, maybe, of Stanford University. Um, just in that they, you know, the, um, the medium is mainly through email, so the Fountain Hopper sends out emails that kind of address certain issues in a very, um, in a very bold and unforgiving way. And this is really interesting because it's sort of a new form of journalism that, um, that 
hasn't really been seen a lot on campus. So, um, you know, so that's been interesting. And it's also interesting just because there's no author name directly on publication, which means that even though some people may know the name of the author, it's very anonymous, and it's sort of meant to be anonymous, which is really troubling, maybe, um, just because there's no accountability there. It, you know, the FOHO oftentimes writes whatever it wants to write, and, and, you know, because there's no name, no one really has to go down for it. It's sort of the yik-yak of publications. You know, while it can unite students and make them feel really good about these common issues, it can also just be devastating if they choose to post something um, that's bad. So... And this week, they sent an email, or it sent an email, I don't know how we will characterize <laughs> yeah. the phone. Oh, sent out, you know, their latest email. And, and in it, it included this damning accusation against uh, the CEO of Stanford Student Enterprises, uh, saying that he um, had hired his girlfriend for a seven, with a, giving her a $70,000 per year uh, salary for really a job that she was not qualified for, essentially. It doesn't even, like, exi he kind of, like, made up a job for her. And, uh... Again, this is money that comes from the students' tuition. So, you know, obviously a lot of people were up in arms about this, as they rightfully should be, and so and the then, CEO resigned. Yeah, I, a couple days later, or not even, about two days later, the Stanford Daily reported that the CEO, who was outed in FOHO, resigned, and he's going to participate in the search committee for his replacement. Yeah, and so, you know, again, that just points to the power that this sort of, that, that the FOHO really has. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, initially they broke that story about students getting access to their application documents. Now, mm -hmm. you know, he breaks this story. It's it's crazy. And, you know, it's it's almost, I mean, it seems like it's been it's been used for, like, good almost so far. But, you know, there's this fear that I have that, that one day maybe the if the FOHO turns against you, there's so little you can do to try and turn that around. I th and I think we've seen that just in, in the few stories that the Fountain Hopper has really chosen to pursue. If they paint you as a villain, there's there's almost no other way that you can be seen around campus, it feels like. Yeah, but who knows? It may be ending in just a few months because the one man behind it is graduating. So. I guess that remains to be seen. Um, uh, well, yeah, uh, so that just about wraps up our coverage of this week. Uh, we're now going to transition into our panel for the week. It's not really a panel. It's a conversation between Ken Arrow and Thomas Piketty, actually, conducted by the Ethics and Society on wealth inequality. Uh, give it a listen. It's great. What do you want to throw at? So why don't we start with what do we know about inequality? Why, why is inequality getting worse? Um, and what do we know about its direction and shape over the last century, the 20th oh, century? So what do we know about inequality? Well, let, let me first say that we know uh, very little. You know, we know a bit more than we used to, uh, but we still know far too little. So what I've tried to do in my research is to collect uh, more historical data on income and wealth, and what we've been doing with a large group of uh, international scholars, some of them in California, like Emmanuel Saez at Berkeley, some of them in Britain, like Tony Atkinson from all over the world, we've been, in a way, we've been just pursuing a research agenda that has been initiated by uh, Simon Kuznets uh, in the 1950s, who was the first economist to combine national accounts data he was also the first to have produced national accounts for the U.S. together with other scholars, and he combined this with data from the uh, federal income tax that had been created in the U.S. in 1913 in order to produce the first historical series on inequality, showing a strong uh, decline in inequality in the U.S. between 1913 and 1948. And wh what we've been doing in our research, in a way, is simply to extend this work to many more years and many more countries. So Kuznets had only one, one country and, and 35 years, but this was already a lot more than before, because in the 19th century, uh, early 20th century, economists were talking about inequality, but with no data, with, which puts limitation, a strong limitation, what you can, what you can say. So, so now we have, we have more years of data, many more countries, and then you can try to propose interpretation. Uh, uh, certainly, the attention today for inequality in the U.S. 
uh, has to do with the fact that we observe, starting around 1980, a strong rise of the share of, of national income going to the top decile, which is now sort of back to the level we had in the early uh, 20th century, around 50% of national income for the top 10%, as opposed to 30-35% in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when Kuznets uh, produced his book. The, the causes are, are complex. It's not, there's not a single um, uh, explanation. Uh, globalization, the competition with emerging countries, the rival of China and the world labor market is certainly part of the explanation. But if this was the only explanation, then you should observe the same trend toward rising inequality in all advanced countries. Globalization happened not only in the US, but also in Sweden, in Germany, in Japan, and you don't see quite the same rise. So probably difference in institutions, difference in educational policy, equal access to education, or equal access to education, difference in labor market institutions, difference in corporate governance, in tax progressivity, with a huge decline of tax progressivity in the US, which used to be the country in the world with the most progressive uh, income tax system from 1930 to 1980, and which has become, afterwards, the country with the, the, the lowest um, uh, tax rate applying to the highest income. So that's a sharp, you know, sharp reversal if you take a long-run perspective comparing uh, the US with Europe. Certainly that's part of the explanation, but again, we, you know, we still know far too little, and, and we, you know, with my colleagues, we keep and we will keep collecting data to try to test uh, better the theories. And, and uh, uh, this is an area where uh, you know I think we are just uh, starting to accumulate uh, knowledge. Thomas, let me ask you: there, there have been studies earlier than because it's perhaps differently oriented. But the idea of measuring income distributions goes back quite a way. It, people like Lorenz and uh, uh, Corrado Gini, um, and of course, uh, perhaps uh, more important than any of these, Vilfredo Bredo, who did various, found records in, I don't know, 16th century, or I'm making this up, but 16th century in Augsburg, uh, and then uh, we found some pioneering, found some particular aspects of the matter, um, in particular, the fact that, in some sense, the tail, the upper tail, was very long compared to the lower tail. The distribution is anything is far from symmetric, and in fact, it's quite a large concentration in the upper tail. Now, how much, of course, varied from place to place. There's there no constants there, but nevertheless, there was a, uh, a tendency, and, and uh, I don't know that he very ever very developed any strong theoretical explanations of this. But there was this idea that um, a small number of people have a at the upper end have a disproportionate share of income. It's a concept that goes back to his work in the late 19th century, I believe. I think this was fairly early in his career. Um, and uh, the, the idea that there have been inequalities of income was a blatant, blatant the, the, quantitatively we didn't know, but certainly the fact that much the, in in every complex society we know it's not just a it's not just a question of capitalism, but in every uh, you know who 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 can say, but in some sense a feudal society had more at least more blatant uh, measures of inequality. You can see it, you know, and it was taken as part of the natural order of things. Um, so it appears that this tendency to inequality. And it's like it seems to have extremely strong roots, and very ancient roots. I mean, obviously, we, we, we can see the, the dwellings, uh, say, in, uh, in ancient Mesopotamia. You can see the difference uh, in, in ways that uh, uh, the ways that we can still that we can see visually and rather, um, and uh, as. So anytime you have, now does this seem to be somehow an inevitable consequence of the complexity of society? Uh, yeah, so, some level of inequality is certainly an unavoidable consequence, and, and in fact, a, a, you know, positive consequence of the fact that different people have different uh, uh, 
attitudes uh, toward work, life, uh, they have different projects, so some of, of inequality not only is inevitable but is, uh, can be positive. It's, 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 the, the, the question is at, at what level does inequality uh, become um, excessive and, and so for this uh, it's important to be able to construct a time series uh, so as to be able to compare, to look at evolution over time and I guess this is what was new with Kuznets and with the project that we have taken is to be able to construct this long time series because at the time of, of uh, Gini or Pareto they were, in a way, they were more interested in stability than in change, and I am more interested in change and stability. Well, but it's also because they had very few years of data. So you take Pareto, you know, he, he had uh, uh, income tax data for a few uh, uh, Swiss cantons and, uh, and parts of Italy uh, around 1890, 1895. So this was very interesting. This allowed him to, to look at this power function Pareto law for the top end of the distribution, which happened to be a much better approximation than the uh, log normal or other distribution, so you need a fatter tail to approximate the top. But because he had no time series, he couldn't really realize that, in fact, you know, you can have, as you, as you were saying, you can have a, a stable structural form at the top with a fat upper tail, but with very different Pareto coefficients, therefore, so that in the end you have very different societies have different levels of inequality. So you always have inequality everywhere, you always have concentration at the top everywhere, but with very different magnitudes. And I, I guess this is something that, uh, um, that we did not realize until recently, that these things can, can change a lot. So uh, to give an, an order of magnitude, uh, when we look at the, the share going to the top 10% of the population, if we first look at income, in, in, uh, it goes from, say, 30% or even 25% of total income in the most egalitarian societies, say, Scandinavia in the 1980s or 1990s, or 30-35% uh, in the US in the 50s, 60s, to 50% in the US today, or 60 or 65% in Brazil or in South Africa today. So when you go from 30 to 60, 65, this basically means that for the same level of GDP, the bottom 90%, the rest of the population, has a, an average income that can be uh, divided by two or multiplied by two or three, uh, depending on, on where you are in terms of level of concentration. So this shows that the, the distribution can, can matter a lot. Now, what are the reasons, what are the main reasons for variation across societies? Generally speaking, I, I try in, in my research to distinguish between the inequality of labor income inequality in capital ownership. So the two are related because more inequality in labor income tends to generate over time more inequality in capital accumulation, saving, and therefore capital ownership. But the, the exact mechanism involved are, are relatively uh, different, even though they are related. So for, for labor income, you, know, you have natural inequality of skills and talents and unequal investment in education and ability to invest in, in education. Uh, and, and this is very, very important. The working of the labor market uh, is, is, uh, is very important. For the inequality of capital ownership, one uh, impact I, I stress, one mechanism that I stress in my work is the, the, the fact that the, the, you have dynamic uh, cumulative process in, in wealth accumulation between families that tends to push the level of wealth concentration at, at, uh, at much higher levels than the, the concentration of labor income, which is something that is not so obvious. There are many theoretical models where the concentration of property should be either in line with the concentration of labor income. You know, if you take a life cycle model of, of capital accumulation, as a first approximation, you could imagine that the concentration of wealth is simply the translation later in life of the concentration of labor income, so the two levels of inequality should be comparable. And, and there are also models of wealth accumulation, like precautionary saving models, where, where it should even be, you should have less concentration of wealth and, and inequality in labor income. You know, if you just have a transitory shock to labor income, you could have Everybody could have the same wealth as a buffer stock. And Now, that's not what you have in the data. In the data, you always have much bigger concentration of property 
so typically the share going to the top 10% of the distribution, it tends to go from say 30 to 50 or 60% for labor income, whereas for wealth it goes from 50, 60% to 90% to the top 10. So even the, the most unequal society in terms of labor income are, are less unequal than the most equal society in terms of, of property. Mm -hmm. And probably the best model to explain this is a, is a model where you have um, uh, dynamic uh, shocks to the wealth accumulation process with long um, lasting uh, strategies, in particular family strategies, family accumulation of wealth, uh, inheritance, and that uh, tends to concentrate uh, wealth over time more than, than, uh, than labor income. Um, and, and yeah, one of the determinants uh, of the, the, the equilibrium level of concentration of wealth, which I point in my book, is the, the gap between the rate of return to capital and the growth rate, uh, which um, in so, so, you know, technically, probably the best model we have to explain Pareto shape and power law at the top end of the distribution are uh, a model with uh, uh, multiplicative random shocks from one period to the other, where the wealth next period of next generation is the product of wealth last period times some multiplicative factors. Uh, uh, with random component and, and what in this class of models the, the long run concentration of wealth will have a Pareto shape in the long run and the Pareto exponent will uh, uh, be higher if you have a higher gap between the rate of return and the growth rate. So that's yeah. a sort of the baseline model mm -hmm. that I have in mind and which I uh, explore to, to explain this part of inequality. Of course, that's not explaining the labor income inequality part, the mm -hmm. skills inequality, but for a given level of inequality of skills, this can contribute to explain mm -hmm. concentration of, of wealth. You're, uh, uh, in this context, you uh, expect, for example, let's, let me take the property income side of that, that the rate of return, you speak of the rate of return, but the rate of return, uh, may vary in many, obviously, obviously does vary enormously. If you look, look at what we think of as even well-organized capital markets, we have quite a large variety of interest rates, but especially when you think of not well-organized, but say direct investment uh, of some kind. You know, uh, we find, uh, seem to find a very large variety of rates of return. And one point of view, and I think you expressed that in your book, uh, Curious to, uh, is that the rate of return tends on the whole to be higher to those who already have more income. I once uh, advanced the view that the reason for that was um, the demand for information. Words, if, I, if I want knowledge about uh, rates of return, rates of return, um, this is very valuable to me. I have a lot of money to invest. It is not particularly valuable if I have very little to invest. Therefore, it pays a, uh, a richer, a, mm -hmm. a wealthier mm -hmm. person who invests more information, and therefore, you expect on a whole to get higher mm -hmm. uh, rates of return. And I know, I know there have been papers. You, I'm sure you know the literature much better than I, where uh, uh, where people have found rates of return that go up mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. initial wealth. Does, does that play a big role in your thinking? Yes, it, it does. And, and, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. So wh where did you write about this? On well, so unfortunately, it was in a probability journal. <laughs> in a probability journal? <laughs> not in a... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had this idea that some former student of mine started this journal. So I said, OK, publish it. Uh, okay. <laughs> of course, nobody... Uh, okay. <laughs> of course, it got, it got lost. <laughs> No, I, I'd, be interested, um, I'd be interested to, to, yeah. to read this. Yeah, but it's a very simple model, but it gives rise to results. In fact, the only problem I had is that my model, I think, had the rate of return going up entirely too, fa too rapidly. Too, too rapidly, okay. to, with, uh, with income. No, but I'd be interested to see that. So, but so basically, I'll refer you the reference. Sorry, give you a copy. So basically, the idea is that you have uh, economies of scale in the production of information and exactly. assets. So, so, and I think this is very important. I think uh, that's to me that's probably the, you know one of the main explanations for the for the, the fact that rate of return tend to rise with initial wealth. So this is an issue which 
I think it's still controversial among uh, uh, academics and economists and, and people working in finance. But I think largely because of lack of good uh, data. So the, the data which I, which I use in my book, which I think is the most uh, convincing evidence for, for this effect, is the data on the return to a university yes. on domains. Yeah. Because, and I remember reading this and thinking about Stanford. As right. as because <laughs> at least the good things about universities, well, there are many good things about universities, but one good thing about universities is that they release data. So, you know, they, pu they publish the data about their on domains, so we know you know, if you take the you know 180 U.S. universities with capital on demand, I, I could easily find the data for at least the last three or four decades, uh, uh, where where you know the size of their on demand, you know how they, they invest it, and you know the rate of return. And it's very striking to see that you know the higher the initial on demand, the higher the, the rate of return. Not only over a few years, but I, if you take the entire 1980 to 2010 period. All universities do pretty well. Like the average rate of return is uh, uh, like six percent, or no, eight uh, percent real return. Uh, but this goes from from basically from five to ten, uh, depending on the size of your own domain and the higher you are initially. Now, I I actually don't know how much this would be the case for individual. Uh, wealth. Uh, maybe it would be less spectacular for individual wealth owners. We, we actually don't know because, you know, the kind of data we have for individual wealth is much less reliable. And then, you know, in particular, the Forbes data, uh, you know, it's, we don't really know how it was computed. We, we certainly observe in the Forbes data that the, the top wealth owners have been rising very fast, but it's a combination of many factors. You have entrepreneurial activities. It's not, it's not a pure rate of return. Whereas at least for university on demand, you can measure some, some notion of pure rate of return. And this is not, there's no direct entrepreneurial activity, by the, at least not by the universities themselves, maybe by their former students, but not by the universities themselves. And you, you can really measure the rate of return net of all uh, financial intermediation cost, because at the individual level, a big part of the financial intermediation is also done uh, in a sort of informal manner. Uh, people spend time uh, looking at their own investments, so what part of their higher return is their uh, labor input, what part is a pure yeah. capital return. So in the end, I, I, we don't know uh, how important this is for individuals. I, I suspect that some of the mechanism we see for university on demands that you identified scale economies in information production and assets should also apply to individuals, but on the other hand, families and individuals are different objects than uh, universities and foundations. They don't have uh, you know, these big boards to look at what they do and to check that they don't uh, uh, make mistakes. You know, in families, you know, people, uh, you know, when they have too much money at some point, there's always someone in the family who messes up everything, and you don't have a board that is uh, making sure that this is not happening. So, yeah, it's, uh, to me, it's large. It's still an open issue for, for, for research. So, can I just you haven't, you, you hinted at this when you compared um, Sweden and the United States, but how much of the story of the U, of the decline and then the rise of inequality is due to changes in the regulatory structure in places like the United States, where you actually see a lot of hoarding of opportunity by the elite and changing the rules so that people can hold on to you know, better opportunity. And I have in mind everything from the deregulation of the financial sector to the weakening of labor law in the United States to the changes in campaign norms I mean, how much of that plays a driving role in the story, independent of the, you know, model of the rate of return to capital increasing mm -hmm. greater than the rate of return to, and and the reason I raise this is because that might matter a lot normatively, if you think that it's actually government policies that are driving a lot of this, and government policies in the interests of a very small minority of the population controlled by that. Do you have a reason to? object to the process? I, I think that changes in government policies, uh, uh, in particular in the US relatively to Sweden or other European countries, 
are uh, absolutely uh, you know the critical part in explaining why you have uh, different uh, inequality trajectories in, in the US vis-à-vis uh, -vis other, other countries. So certainly the change in labor market institutions, labor laws have played an important role. Of course, the, the role of, of unions, collective bargaining has declined everywhere, not only in the US, but in addition, the US is the only country where, where the, together with, the, with, the, with this, you've had a decline, an enormous decline in the, the importance of the national minimum wage, which used to be until the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, very... Uh, active instrument of, uh, of policy in the U.S. relative to other countries, and, and whereas now it is, you know, at the federal level, it's, uh, it's really uh, uh, extremely low. By historical standards, it's, uh, you know, little more than $7 per hour, whereas in the 60s, it used to be, in dollars of today, uh, a bit more than $10 per hour. So it's quite unusual to have a 30% decline in the absolute value of the minimum wage in, in 50 years. Whereas in, in Euro European countries, many countries recently which introduced actually a national minimum wage like Germany or Britain, in part as a reaction to the weakening of, of unions. And so, you know, it's not that you can do the same thing with the national minimum wage of the union, but at least you can try to compensate for some of the uh, uh, decline of union. Um, uh, financial uh, regulation uh, also is important. C campaign finance, uh, you know, it's difficult to measure the direct impact on, 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 on policy, policy by policy, but I think it's, uh, it's clearly there and it's very, uh, you know, it's viewed from, from Europe, it's very, uh, it's very striking to, to see the recent uh, regulatory evolution in the US and the, the fact that you have no, no you know, basically no, almost no limitation now on, on how much private uh, money can uh, influence politics, whereas in, in every European country you have indeed strong limitation on how much uh, individual gift can make, typically a few thousand euros, or, uh, relatively small. And, and so all of this in the end makes a difference and contributes to explain why you have this big reversal if you take a long-run perspective on inequality, you know, Europe used to be more unequal than the US in 1910 until 1920, and today it's the opposite. And that's very striking because it shows that there's no deterministic, uh, you know, law that makes some countries or some, uh, you know, some culture or some civilization, you know, more unequal than others. It's really the, the change in institutions, the change in political uh, culture and, 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 and attitudes. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I, I find this very, very striking to see that the U.S., which uh, invented, in a way, many modern forms of redistribution, in particular progressive taxation of income and, and inheritance, was in many ways uh, invented in the U.S. in the interwar period and pushed to a level which, uh, you know, between 1930 and 1980, you have a level of, of progressive taxation of income and inherited wealth which is much higher in the U.S. than in Europe, and, and then you have a very, very sharp uh, uh, reversal. I, I tried to get at some of the explanation for this in my book, but it's certainly uh, you know, very, uh, very incomplete. If we pursue these lines, uh, there are many aspects, particularly the role of tax policy, and of course, uh, I remember that the uh, 50s or early 60s, I think it was early 60s, uh, when we had very high marginal tax rates. Uh, uh, an economist at the Brookings Institution, Joseph Peckman, showed that the actual taxes on the rich were more like 30, 30 looked more like 30 percent than 60 percent, than the paper, 60 or 70 percent. And of course, there were lots of the, the, the tax code is famous or infamous for its size. Uh, you know, the, the, in fact, everybody, the right, left, everybody complains about the size, the sheer size of the tax code. And of course, it's no accident because you, you, you have, oh, well, yes, there's progressive taxation. But you don't want to count this. We want to subsidize that was uh, uh, things like oil re re revenues from oil mm -hmm. had special treatment. Mm -hmm. the, the idea is to, in, quote, encourage. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, uh, we have this. Well, let me ask uh, a, a, a question which uh, Deborah raised briefly 
Um, why do we care about inequality? Well, you know, the crude argument is we have in the United States and Europe uh, and Mao in, in, in other countries like China um, a level of prosperity that the world has never seen. We're consuming at levels, uh, you know, look around. Uh, even, in the, even in the late 60s, there was a, uh, one of the, the, the uh, was a socialists, <laughs> was a, remember the sort of a man named Michael Harrington, who had a lot of respect, even though, uh, f even from broad. Yeah, and he wrote a book called Poverty in America. Yeah. And he tried to start by saying, well, poverty in America is not quite <laughs> what you might think of. You know, everybody's a television set, everybody's a car, uh, things of this kind. So the, uh, in other words, at the levels, when you, when you add it all up, and I think you refer to this in your book at several points, um, really turn out to be high. So my argument is, okay, inequality is the price that we pay for progress. In other words, if you, if you really had strongly egalitarian measures, very high marginal tax rates, you would blunt the incentives to accumulate, to, to innovate, to invest, and, and therefore, uh, this is the price we pay. So, uh, and, uh, well, you know, every field of endeavor, not only economics, uh, competition makes a difference, and competition means some people win and some people lose. So how would you address this question? That uh, this is, okay, we have a lot of inequality, this is the price we pay. Yeah, I think it's, it's entirely a question of degree. You know, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I'm not saying inequality is bad in general. You know, I think it's really a question of degree. I think, to be concrete, in the case of the U.S. today, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, we cannot do more for the bottom 50% of the population, we cannot give them more in terms of, uh, you know, access to healthcare, higher minimum wage, because otherwise, uh, there will be no more incentives for the top to innovate and we will lose so much in growth that in the end uh, this would be bad for the bottom 50%. I think this idea is an interesting theoretical hypothesis but it's not, uh, to me, it's not very convincing. You know, I think it's possible uh, in a country like the US today at the same time to reduce inequality and to have uh, more growth. I think above a certain level uh, uh, inequality is not uh, useful. Now, where is exactly the tipping point? You know, I, I don't have a mathematical formula to determine the tipping point in all cases. All what we have is this uh, uh, body of historical experience from which we can try to, to make our own opinion. Mm -hmm. So, in the case of the US, I find it striking that, you know, at the time of the confiscatory uh, top marginal tax rate. So between 1930 and 1980, if you make the average, you have a top marginal tax rate of 82%. So sometimes it's 91, sometimes it's 70, but on average it's 82% during half a century, 1930 to 1980. And so apparently this did not uh, destroy American capitalism. And if anything, the productivity growth rates of the US economy in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the productivity growth rate must reflect innovation activities of, you know, of all sorts. Uh, well, they were higher for this productivity growth rate than they, they have been since the 1980s. Probably because above a certain level, you know, paying top managers $10 million per year rather than $1 million is not, uh, is not so useful in terms of performance, uh, job creation, and at least in the data I have, you know, I could not, uh, I could not find it. So pr probably the, the reason, you know, so this, this top marginal tax rate, as, as you were mentioning, there, there were ways around them. But also, I think, you know, one reason why very few people were paying them is precisely because the objective of this tax rate, you know, when you have 91% above, say, $1 million of annual uh, regular income, the, the objective is not so much to raise tax revenue, but to make this income uh, disappear. So this is a disincentive, you know, this is a way to tell corporations, well, look, if you pay top managers above this level, you know, we get all of it. So, so you know, it's going to be very difficult for a top manager to convince your board 
uh, and, and your shareholders and your subordinates that you should be given one more million or ten more million with such a tax rate. And you have to be very convincing because every. So I, I think in the end, the, the objective of this policy, if we want to rationalize this kind of policy, you need a model where uh, uh, bargaining power is very important for managers and you, and, and you have a lot of imperfect competition. If you have a model with perfect competition where everybody is paid uh, his marginal product, then it's very difficult to rationalize this kind of, of very high tax rate. So I think this, this tax rate can be justified if you have a view of the world where uh, you know, the, the way top compensation is set has little to do with uh, a competitive uh, a model with full information and has a lot more to do with uh, bargaining power, the ability sometimes of top managers to put the right people in the right compensation committee. And, and, then, and then if you want to, to limit that kind of behavior, the tax system is one of the ways to go. It's not the only one. You know, you may want to involve, uh, to change the corporate governments, to involve workers. You know, I think the fact that you have in Sweden uh, uh, one third of the board uh, in companies that are made of representative of uh, workers, uh, one half in Germany, I think this has an impact on the, on the salary scale and, and on other decisions. And generally speaking, I think there's evidence that it's quite good for a... Uh, uh, you know, involving uh, unions and workers in the long-run strategy of the company. Um, and so it's not only the tax system, as you were, you know, the, the regulatory uh, framework makes a... Makes a yeah, there was a case uh, about six or eight months ago, there was <clears throat> election uh, to determine whether a union should represent uh, workers in a Volkswagen plant, Tennessee or someplace like that. I don't know. It was in, it was in the South. And Volkswagen wanted the unions to win. Volkswagen wanted the unions to win. Volkswagen yeah. wanted the unions well, that's what they were accustomed to. And yeah. the, the workers rejected it. But you, you, you could have worker representative in boards without the, the union. Well, at, at some point, you still need to be organized yeah. to, to have a policy platform. I think they felt a union, they, there was somebody, a locus, you know, a well-defined yes, uh, place to discuss. To, to, yes. to talk. We should probably, I mean, this is great. I mean, we could go on, but we're yeah. going to go on in the next room, and we should give you five minutes yeah. to <laughs> transition. Yeah. Thank so thank you. So much. Yeah, thank yeah. You. it's great. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's an interesting question. What counts as, as you said, too much inequality, and how do we decide when mm -hmm. inequality mm -hmm. is too much if we don't think inequality in itself income or wealth inequality in itself is a problem, then there's got to be some, either because of the origins of it or the consequences mm -hmm. of it, that we determine that's what matters. And then what makes it yeah. too much is when it gets to this level, it has these consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously, I mean, one thing people sometimes talk about is, is inequality. Too much inequality can be too much for growth. So the question there is this argument. Yeah, there's a line. Of it's still, I think, an open question. But I think my guess is that in those cases, it's not inequality per se. It's it's some other dimension connected, connected with inequality. It's, 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 it's a rent really, seeking. It's more yeah, yeah, sort of the bargaining yeah, power yeah. of managers. Yeah. Of yeah. Here, yeah, it's clearly it's not. Uh, it's not useful. It's yeah, not, um, um, no, the, uh, po the political consequences are, are uh, to me are some uh, the most disturbing. Is that when you if you don't manage in a society to make inequality uh, acceptable or equitable, or, then uh, people will find other ways, or politicians, or people will find other ways to address uh, domestic inequality problem by appealing to you know nationalism or to you know they will find when you don't manage to solve domestic inequality problem in a peaceful manner, you can always find other people who are responsible for the problem. You know you. You can blame other countries, you can blame foreign workers, you can blame... So the nationalism, racism, social tensions, you know, I think is what extreme inequality uh, tends, to, tends to generate. Uh, well, you know, one thing that strikes me in this country, and I don't, I don't want to generalize, is that I am amazed how little people resent inequality. Yeah. <laughs> how tolerant people are. You know, we had a, we had a, we had a sort of a very clear test in the state uh, oh, 20 years ago so. 
we have, there's a federal estate tax, which of course is being eroded rapidly, but that might be. And the state of California had an estate tax, exactly the same form, so it was an additional 5%, same exemption level, which at that point I think was a half a billion dollars. It's gone up a lot since then. Somebody introduced a, uh, an initiative. You know, we, have, we have a little bit of direct democracy mm -hmm. in, this, in this state. Um, to repeal the estate tax. And land prices have been going up. So a lot of people could see mm -hmm. they're optimistic. They projected themselves to a point where they would pay some tax. Mm -hmm. Of course, they wouldn't pay much. You know, but but you know, they'd pay a tax. Uh, now you think about it. What happens if you repeal a state tax? Revenues are lost. Either you've got to reduce public expenditures. You know, it's just arithmetic, not even economics. Or you have to increase some other tax. The percentage of people in California who paid any estate tax, percentage of people died, mm -hmm. was something like 5%. The, 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 the initiative passed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that's an absolutely clear case. You know, The bulk of the people clearly would benefit. Mm -hmm. There was no, no possible way by which they, would, they could not benefit by keeping the tax. But I think part of the reason is that when you have a lot of asset price inflation uh, and increase in real estate price, it's, you know, we should adjust and index, uh, you know, the, the brackets, you know, yeah. whether or the tax rate, either for the property tax or the inheritance tax, because if you just let inflation increase the tax burden... Well, this was not inflation in general, this was... Asset price inflation. Asset price yes. inflation. So if you, but if you just so the usual CPI, price, the usual CPI doesn't work. No, no, you want to look at adjust on asset price inflation. Yeah. If you, if you don't do that and if you don't explain to people, you know, why suddenly they should pay much more, yeah. I think it's not surprising that they are uh, unhappy. Thanks for listening to that. We're going to be taking a break for the next two weeks as we will continue into finals and spring break. So we'll be back April 1st for episode 7. Thanks again and join us then.